Hello and welcome to the Close Head Podcast. My name is Themistoclus Alexis, and today we will be covering the life, work, exploits, and controversies of an iconic American director, Elia Kazan. Today, the subject of our show, the first of a three-part episode, is Ilya Kazan, an iconic director of both the stage and screen, was a very important and influential man in American cinema and American theater, was a founding member of the Actors Studio, which produced some of America's greatest acting talents, uh, did a lot of great work in the theater, collaborated with some of the best playwrights ever, including Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, William Inge, and later in life, Harold Pinter. Directed 19 films over the course of his career, including classics like The Streetcar Named Desire, On the Waterfront, East of Eden, Baby Doll, America, America, Face in the Crowd, it goes on and on. And we're going to be covering all that, as well as some of the controversies that surrounded Elia Kazan over the course of his life. He was what's called a friendly witness during the height of the Red Scare in the United States. This was during the Cold War. And there was a communist witch hunt happening in Hollywood at the time. And Kazan is one of several people who testified before the House of Un-American Activities Committee and uh, named names, basically. And this made him a very polarizing figure in show business. And so we have a lot to get to between that, the films, the work on stage. And so that's why I'm making this a three-parter. Uh, and before we get to all that, though, just a couple things I want to get out of the way first. First of all, as per usual, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Uh, just look up Close Set with T and Lexus, subscribe, listen, leave comments, all that good stuff you know what to do. Uh, you can find us on the Instagram at Close Set Podcast. That is the handle where you can find updates for new episodes, little teasers, and so on and so forth. And you can also find us via email at closedsetpod at gmail.com. That is closedsetpod at gmail.com. Another thing I would like to get to, something I need to mention. So this is going to be a three-parter. After I put this three-parter up with Ilya Kazan... I am going to change things up with the show. I'm going to have to shift the focus. As much as I love dedicating one episode to every director, and I love the preparation, I love watching all the old films, I love looking these directors up and learning about their lives and so on and so forth. Of course, every director I cover, I'm at least a little bit familiar with going into it, so it's not like taking a shot in the dark, really. It's not completely unknown territory. That said, there are only so many hours in the day and between the show and my other artistic or creative pursuits, whatever, uh, my illustrations, the acting classes I've been taking, all the other life things that adults have to do. The podcast, because I'm doing it all myself, it takes up so many, so many hours of preparation and so much of my time. And so I am currently in the process of trying to figure out how I can reconfigure the show and shift the focus while still covering that, that stretch of cinema from the 30s to the 80s and uh, how I can sort of reformat it and still do these works justice, and still put a show together that is informative and, you know, ideally entertaining as well. I'm going to try to sort of chew on it and throw some ideas around over the next few weeks, and I'll see what I come up with. And now with that out of the way, and with all that said, let us boogie. Now, Ilya Kazan was born on September 7th, 1909, in Kostadinopoli, which is now known as Istanbul, formerly a Greek city, it is now Turkish territory, 
and he was born to a Greek family. And he was born in Turkey at a time where relations between the establishment, the Turkish regime, and the ethnic minorities in the region, Armenians, Greeks, uh, were not so friendly. The, the, main, the main impression I have is that the whole family was rather terrified there, the Turks. They, uh, they were frightened. They were a minority. They were clung together. They lived in rather a ghetto. We spoke Greek in the house and we spoke Turkish on the street. And so at the age of four, Kazan and his family, his parents, his brother, they came to the United States. This was in 1913, shortly before the outbreak of World War I and before the Armenian Genocide. So they settled in New York City. Kazan spent his childhood there. And they later moved just north of the city to New Rochelle. So basically in New York City, you have the Bronx, which is north of Manhattan. You basically draw a line going all the way across the north end of it. And suddenly you're in Westchester County and there's Yonkers, Mount Vernon, and New Rochelle, all those border the Bronx, essentially. So it's uh, adjacent to New York City, and that's where uh, that's where Kazan spent his teenage years. That's where he went to high school. And Kazan's father was a rug merchant. He peddled rugs for a living. He sold rugs. And as per Greek tradition, what used to be the case, what was often expected of the eldest son, was to carry on the father's business, to keep the family business alive. And so Kazan's father basically hoped that Ilya would carry on the family business and be a rug merchant himself and so on and so forth. And, of course, Kazan uh, wanted to go another way. And so, ultimately, he went to Williams College first in Massachusetts and later went to Yale. And uh, he went to Yale Drama School, studied there. And while he was in college, he worked as a waiter. He worked as a dishwasher to sort of pay his own way and get by. He, uh, he was a bartender for France as well. I was a waiter, you know. I was a waiter for four years. I washed dishes. I was a waiter. I was an outsider, no doubt about it. And I felt uh, what I'd felt everywhere in my whole life, a member of a minority group. I was a member of a minority group, uh, the Jews, the blacks, and uh, one Greek. That said, it was uh, while he was at Yale that he met his first wife, a woman named Molly Day Thatcher, who was a playwright. And the two of them were married in 1932. And it was in the 30s that Ilya Kazan joined the group theater. After he finished college, he went to the group theater. He took an apprenticeship there as an actor. And the group theater was founded by Harold Clerman, Cheryl Crawford, and Lee Strasberg, who would later become a seminal member of the actor studio, a very, very revered and respected acting teacher, and was also an actor. He was in Godfather Part II, among several other things. He plays Hyman Roth. And so he joined the group theater. And it was somewhere around this time. I don't know if it was either in college or in the group theater. He, he was given the nickname Gadge from Gadget. And his peers gave him this nickname because he was he had become known as someone who was dependable and reliable if you needed anything done whatever it was handiwork and the like you could just go to him and you you know he was someone who's reliable and someone you could depend on to get such things done however uh, Kazan was resentful of that kind of treatment he didn't like being looked at that way by his peers he kind of thought it was demeaning but in any case he uh, he takes on this apprenticeship as an actor with the group theater and the people running the group theater initially had some reservations about his potential as an actor. However, he stuck with them, and in his youth, he acted in a pair of Clifford Odette's plays, uh, one of which was Golden Boy, the other was called Waiting for Lefty. And his work in Waiting for Lefty actually got him, maybe not some buzz, but at least some respect from his peers. And he actually proved himself to be a capable actor. Well, uh, I started as an assistant stage manager, and uh, we were all progressives, what we called it then, and... Uh, um, we had, uh, there were special Sunday evenings of plays of social content. And Clifford Odets and a number of us, I wrote a play about Dimitrov with a man named Art Smith. 
And Clifford wrote a really wonderful play uh, that's a real play called Waiting for Lefty. And I played the fellow that rushed up on stage and exposed his brother, who was, a, who was an informer. And I yelled, strike, strike, strike. But the, it wasn't only uh, plays of that kind. They were plays of ordinary life, of the poetry of ordinary life. And so after working with the group theater, he uh, actually got some film work in the early 1940s, 1940, 1941. He was in two films directed by Anatole Litvak. The first was City for Conquest with James Cagney, and the second was called Blues in the Night. However, that basically proved to be the extent of Kazan's acting work. Not long after that, he, he shifted focus. He wanted to become a, a director. And he worked on a couple of short documentaries early in his career, but in the 1940s, he shifted to directing theater. And one of the first productions he directed was in the early 40s, in 1942 to be exact. He directed a production of Thornton Wilder's play, Skin of Our Teeth, with Tallulah Bankhead and the great actor Frederick March, two-time Oscar winner. And another thing I want to mention before we get into the films and all the rest of it, because this is going to come up later. In the mid-30s, while with the group theater, Kazan joined the Communist Party. And he's talked about this in interviews. A lot of his peers, a lot of his colleagues, a lot of the people he worked with at the time in the 30s uh, were leftists, leftists themselves. And Kazan sort of talked about this as being a sort of natural inclination. Keep in mind this in the 1930s. America is very much in the, in the throes of the Great Depression. And so the way Kazan put it, he basically said that a lot of his colleagues and a lot of the people he knew leaned left politically and ideologically, if only because just the general state of things in America was so deplorable that the leftist ideology just became attractive to them as an alternative. And, you know, they looked at the Depression and made them wonder basically what, where, where America had gone wrong, what was wrong with this country. However, he wasn't with the Communist Party long. In fact, about a year and a half after joining, uh, he left the Communist Party and he didn't leave on good terms because it turned out, or at least according to Kazan, that the Communist Party wanted to meddle in his work. And they wanted his work to sort of toe the party line and they, they had asked him to make changes in some of his works. Kazan had written plays as well in his youth, in addition to acting and later directing. And uh, Kazan was not happy at, the, at being told to change his art. And I believe there were other sources of discord between him and the party. And ultimately he left about a year and a half after joining. Child of the Depression. My father's life and his business were ruined by the Depression. He never was the same. It broke his back. And uh, I was very affected by it. I thought the whole system uh, here in America was uh, cruel and, uh, uh, and dangerous. And uh, that was when I joined the Communist Party and became a communist. And uh, I believed in that ideology for about a year and a quarter. And then I resigned in 1935. And uh, they, they were interfering in the uh, artistic life of the group theater, or trying to do, or trying to. And uh, I wouldn't obey their orders. And they finally tried me. They had a trial. They had a trial right above a bakery, a bakery where they made sweets. And I can remember the trial because uh, on my nose was always the smell of, uh, of burnt sugar and molasses and all kinds of sweet things. And I remember the vote was 22 to 2 against me. And uh, uh, it was an invitation to resign. I resigned the next morning. And the reason I mention this is because it's going to play, it's going to come up later when we talk about the Red Scare and him testifying before the House of Un-American Activities Committee and the whole sort of communist crackdown of the, uh, of the late 40s, and that lasted basically through the entire 1950s. A lot of people got blacklisted. A lot of performers were not allowed to work. But we're going to get to all that later. And Kazan himself has said that after leaving the party, he became disillusioned with a lot of the communist regimes of his time, namely the USSR. Now, after the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, the USSR was, you know, a communist state. And when... Stalin signed a pact with Nazi Germany that sort of turned Kazan off to 
communism entirely. That pact is actually formally known as the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, uh, named after the two foreign ministers of those two nations. It was basically a peace pact, signed shortly before the war in, uh, in the summer of 1939, shortly before the Nazis invaded Poland. The two of them later ended up going to war. Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. There was a siege at Leningrad that lasted, lasted 900 days, and eventually the Soviet Union pushed, pushed back and made their way all the way back to Berlin. But in any case, Kazan grew to sort of, maybe not resent, but he had a bit of a disdain for, for the communist regimes of, of his time after he was basically kicked out of the party. But uh, you were very much in love with the Soviet Union at the time. Yes, I, even after I resigned from the Communist Party, I thought the, the Soviet Union couldn't do anything wrong, of course, until Czechoslovakia and Hungary, and above all, the first thing that happened was the Nazi pact. As soon as they made a pact with Hitler, I was uh, you know, knocked off my feet. I, I couldn't believe that. And, uh, th and then I heard the defense of that pact here by, uh, by representatives of the USSR here, and, uh, of course, I was alienated completely. And so he gets a bit of film work, he starts directing in the theater, and it was in 1945 that he directed his first feature film called A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. This is based on the best-selling novel by Betty Smith, which came out in 1943. 20th Century Fox put this picture out, and it follows a young girl from a poor, working-class family in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, in the early 20th century. And she's a precocious kid, smart, loves school, loves to learn, has aspirations of becoming a writer. And it follows her, her brother Neely, with their mother, played by the great Dorothy McGuire, who is sort of has to be the bad cop among the two parents. Maybe not the bad cop, but she has to take more of a hard line. She has to be, she has to be the more practical of, of the parents. She has to pinch pennies. She works. She runs the house. You wouldn't get it, Katie. You've got all the breaks I've never had. You've got the kids, and you've got a guy you're clear overboard about. You're lucky. Yeah, and where does crazy over somebody get you? You don't put no pennies in the bank. You don't buy no clothes for the kids to go to school in. Maybe you got it better not sticking to one guy. I wish sometimes I wasn't so crazy over him. Hey, Katie. I won't have the kids taken after him either. Him and those dreamy ways of his I used to think was so fine. Not if I got to cut it right out of their hearts. And she's basically keeping the house together because the main character's father, played by James Dunn, is a bit of an alcoholic. He's a dreamer. And as charming and as affable as he is, he's unreliable. He has dreams of that somehow, some some way he'll be discovered and become a successful singer that'll make some moves and finally make the family some money or get a steady job and pull them out of poverty. And it's this charade or this game that he and the family play, when in reality they all know that that is probably not a possibility. Things are going to be different around here. You ain't going to be working hard like you, like you are now. I don't mind the work, John. No, sir, I ain't going to stand for it. Look at them pretty hands. They ain't got no business being in the water all the time. I'm going to change a lot of things around here. I'm going to cut out the drinking, too. And just to prove it to you, here's my tip money. Don't keep your tips, Johnny. Take all a man's money. It ain't right. And I'm going to keep Adam down at the union headquarters and make him get me some jobs. Yes, sir, tonight's the beginning of something new. Oh, you believe me, don't you, Katie? Yeah, Johnny, yeah, sure I do. And I'll be singing all over Brooklyn and maybe Manhattan, too. Have you heard Johnny Nolan sing, they'll say? And, and oh, then maybe someday... Johnny, maybe... stop it! Stop it! Stop talking! ain't got a chance. Who are we trying to kid? Yeah. Sure, you're right. 
Who am I trying to kid? I didn't go to hurt you, Johnny, but it's the truth, and I can't change it. And it's a very sweet and heartbreaking film. And the cast... So Peggy Ann Garner plays the main character, Francie, and she's wonderful in this. Dorothy McGuire and James Dunn play her parents. Joan Blondell, the great Joan Blondell, who we've mentioned in, in our John Cassavetes episode, she was in Opening Night. She was in Greece as well. Those roles came later in her life. She was in The Public Enemy with James Cagney in her youth. A wonderful actor. She's in this as well. She plays the aunt to Peggy Ann Garner's character. Just coffee for me. I've got to get home soon and fix breakfast for Bill. Breakfast? At night? Yeah, ain't it a riot? We sleep all day long with the shades pulled down to keep out the sun. And the window shut to keep out the noise. It's fun. You don't live like nobody else. No, you sure don't. Easy on the whip, kid. Ted Donaldson plays Peggy Ann Garner's brother, Neely. Lloyd Nolan shows up as a neighborhood beat cop. He was in A Hat Full of Rain. James Gleason and Ruth Nelson shows up as Peggy Ann Garner's teacher, Miss McDonough. Ruth Nelson was actually a member of the group theater, so she and, she and Kazan knew each other before this, presumably. And this was a popular novel, and 20th Century Fox actually bought the rights to this. There was a bit of a bidding war for the rights to the novel, for the adaptation. And Dorothy McGuire and James Dunn, uh, neither of them was at, were actually the first choices to play their roles. Gene Tierney had been in the running for, for Dorothy McGuire's part, the part of the mother. James Dunn, I believe, had tested twice for the role. He was considered early on in the running, and then I believe when... When all other options fell through, James Dunn was finally cast, and it's a wonderful performance. He had been, he had been very successful in the early 30s, and his life and career took a lot of different turns. He had money problems, he was a drinker, he hadn't been in very many successful films in the years preceding his role in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, but he is wonderful in this. Very charming, very childlike almost, and he has a wonderful relationship with his daughter, even though he's not... Oftentimes, he really isn't living in reality. And while it's Dorothy McGuire's character, who is the pragmatist, she's running the show, she's trying to scrape a living together for the family, provide for her children. It's James Dunn's character, her father, the dreamer, who actually finagles his way into getting his daughter admitted to a school that isn't in their district. Because she loves school, she has dreams of going to this school in the next neighborhood over. James Dunn finds a way to, to get her admitted to the school, much to his daughter's delight. As long as we're gonna buy that house someday, uh, why don't we maybe borrow it for now, like, uh, we make out it's ours. Then your address would be, uh, uh, 98 Hibbert Avenue. Starting right now, then you see, they kind of transfer you from your old school. How do you mean, Papa? Yes, sir, that's it. We could say you come here to live with your aunt. Your rich old aunt. She, she's lonesome, and she's gonna leave you all the money. Oh, Papa, could we really? Sure, we could. It's nobody's business. Mm, sometimes I forget to water the geraniums and... <gasps> You ought to hear Annie scold me. Oh, but you got to put up with her crotchets. After all, you're her heir. That little room up there, that could be mine, couldn't it? Uh, uh... Look, prima donna. After all, you know, uh... This ain't exactly according to the rules. You mean it's wrong? No, sir, not by a jugful it ain't wrong. Look. The house is here, we're here, and the school's here. Now, we wasn't all thrown together for no reason, but we gotta keep it kind of a secret. You know, you can't tell nobody, and you gotta be extra good to make up for it. Oh, I will. And it's a very sweet and lovely coming-of-age film. And the performances are wonderful. And I got choked up. In fact, I, I, I was sobbing completely at one moment in the film, which I won't, I won't reveal because it'll, it'll spoil it for you. It comes towards the end. But a wonderful film. And the film wasn't shot on location in Brooklyn. It was actually shot on the lot at 20th Century, 20th Century Fox. And they had built a, a replica of the four-story tenement in which uh, a lot of the film takes place where the family lives. 
and there had been a bit of a beef as well with the Motion Picture Association, the, the, the censorship board, because Joan Blondell's character is, she's made out to be a little promiscuous, and she's been married several, several times, and the censorship criteria for that time was very, very sort of conservative, and talking about how Joan Blondell's character is made out to be a bigamist, and this, then, the third, and there was a bit of a, bit of a fuss over that. But the film was very well received. It's a fantastic first effort from Elia Kazan. And James Dunn won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. And Peggy Ann Garner won an Academy Juvenile Award, which is which is not an award that's given out anymore. And the two screenwriters were a husband and wife couple, Tess Lessinger and Frank Davis. They were nominated for their adaptation of Bessie, Betty Smith's novel. And so in the mid-40s, shortly after A Tree Grows in Brooklyn was made, Elia Kazan founds the actor studio. The group theater had disbanded. In 1941, they had been around for a decade. And so in the mid-40s, Kazan founded the Actor Studio with an actor named Robert Lewis and Cheryl Crawford, who was, uh, of course, a founding mem- member of the group theater. And Lee Strasberg ended up coming on as director of the Actor Studio uh, after it was founded. And what they did was teach their own version of method acting. It was derived from Konstantin Stanislavski's method, but it, they didn't follow his method to the letter. It was a variation thereof, and it relied a lot on sense memory, emotional memory, drawing on personal experience uh, for your performance. It was a, uh, a movement against the narcissism of the old theater, where actors essentially showed themselves off. For the first time, it, br- it brought dignity to the feelings and emotions and experiences of the common man. And naturally, uh, different kinds of stars came into it. I mean, it's inconceivable in the theater of the 1920s that Al Pacino would be a star or, or Bobby De Niro, that the whole thing has changed because of us, because of this place. The method essentially is terribly human, profoundly human thing. It's not, uh, uh, it was affected by psychoanalysis, by the new developments in psychoanalysis, the understanding of the, the soul, so to say. People were trained in to control their own emotions. But there were also sensory exercises. We, we, made, the senses, uh, we made the senses more keen, more, uh, uh, more felt. And so Kazan and his group sort of pioneered that, that style of acting, and the, the actor studio has produced, it's still a very beloved and prestigious acting academy, and it's produced some of the greatest actors ever, including Marlon Brando, James Dean, Eva Marie Saint, Montgomery Clift... Uh, it goes on and on, and uh, Kazan actually cast a lot of those a lot of those actors in his films. We're going to talk about that as we go movie by movie. Uh, well, you see, the the thing is, I was talking about the method. the uh, the uh, The result of the actor studio, group theater, method, which is not exactly the Stanislavski method, but it's what Lee and Harold and some of the rest of us developed. The result of it is that you can never tell from an actor, from a leading actor, what he's going to do. Whether, for example, with a girl in the love scene, whether he's going to make love to her or, or beat her up. And what you're watching is this person, who's almost animalistic, behave. And it's fascinating. You don't know what the hell he's going to do next. And then in 1947, Kazan had a very, very busy year. He directed uh, three films, the first of which was called Sea of Grass. This was for MGM. And it's a piece of shit, frankly, of the th- of it might be Kazan's worst film. It stars Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, Melvin Douglas, Robert Walker, and Phyllis Thaxter. Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn were a couple, two excellent actors, and they had made nine films together for MGM. And so the film opens, Catherine Hepburn is leaving St. Louis. She's going to meet Spencer Tracy in New Mexico to marry him. He's a cattle rancher who is a sort of polarizing figure in town. And Melvin Douglas is the first man Catherine Hepburn meets when she gets to town. He's a bit of a rival of Spencer Tracy's character, and he tries to woo her and so on and so forth. Catherine Hepburn's marriage to Spencer Tracy hits the rocks. 
she ends up having a son with Melvin Douglas's character who is who ends up getting raised by Spencer Tracy and it's this whole it's it's a sh- it's a shitty romance honestly it's it, it's 2 hours long nothing happens it's a movie that doesn't really know what it wants to be or what it wants to say it really is a dud and honestly Kazan didn't like it himself he couldn't stand this film and when he signed on to do it uh, he was looking forward to actually shooting on location however the studio and the producers poo-pooed it because they had a bunch of stock footage of just footage of a, of a prairie and so a lot of the film was shot or the sections of the film were shot with the prairie as uh, basically on a, on a rear projection in the studio and Kazan didn't like it and I agree it's not a good film it's a piece of shit if there's any if there's anyone you can skip in his catalog it's this I don't want to spend too much time talking about this because we have a lot to get to but don't bother with this one honestly and 47 was a busy year not just on screen but off screen Kazan stayed busy he worked on Broadway and he directed uh, the play All My Sons by Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller is a legendary and iconic American playwright, wrote All My Sons and Death of a Salesman, and this production was with uh, was with Ed Begley, Ed Begley Sr., who won an Oscar for Sweet Bird of Youth in 1962, uh, Arthur Kennedy, and Carl Malden, all three fantastic actors. And Kazan directed the Broadway production, actually won a Tony for Best Director. And so the second film he made in 1947 is called Boomerang. He went back to 20th Century Fox for this one. And it's based on a true crime that was committed in the 1920s in Connecticut. And it follows the investigation of a murder. So a priest is murdered in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and a vagrant is brought in on suspicion of the murder, and he's basically forced to confess because the local government, the mayor's office, they're in desperate need of a conviction because a few weeks pass, there's no suspect, there's no arrest, and so there's pressure put on the local government. The townspeople are calling for an arrest. They're growing uneasy. The administration is putting pressure on the police department to find a murderer. And so there's pressure coming from basically all sides for the police to find the killer and convict him. And so they find this vagrant. They basically keep him awake for two days and leave him no choice but to confess. However, the state's attorney, played by Dana Andrews, is not convinced that he is the murderer. And he's got political aspirations, and he ends up putting them aside, or jeopardizing them essentially, uh, jeopardizing an opportunity to move up politically in an effort to prove that this vagrant, this suspect, isn't guilty. And it's a simple story, and it's a very good movie. Dana Andrews plays the lead. He plays the state's attorney. Lee J. Cobb plays the local police chief, who is under a lot of pressure to get an arrest and convict this guy of murder. Jane Wyatt plays the wife of Dana Andrews' character. Arthur Kennedy is the vagrant that is brought in on suspicion and is forced to confess to this murder. Now, wait a minute. You did confess. Sure, I confessed. After two days in that joint, I had to confess anything. What do you want? You want to hear it all over again? All right, all Get right. out of here. I know what you want. You want to hang me. That's what you want to do. You want to hear me say I killed him? All right. I killed him. Go ahead and hang me. Hang me. Sam Levine plays a local reporter. He was a New Yorker, and he's, he's wonderful in this. And some great character actors show up in this as well. Robert Keith, Ed Begley, who had starred in the Broadway production of All My Sons with Kazan, and Carl Malden is in this as well. He plays a detective, and he's going to come up again later. And so the film was shot on location in Connecticut, and like I said, it's based on a real crime, and the state's attorney that Dana Andrews plays is actually based on a man named Homer Cummings, who was a prosecutor, and later ended up becoming uh, the Attorney General of the United States. It's a very good mystery film, great performances, very sort of meat-and-potato storytelling, and it's interesting watching these these different players, these different big shots sort of clamoring for a conviction for their own personal gain. It doesn't really become about the justice being served. Now, the third film Kazan made in 1947 is probably his best one. 20th Century Fox put this one out yet again. It's called Gentleman's Agreement. And it's based on Laura Z. Hobson's novel. And it was adapted by Kazan and a guy named Moss Hart. And so Gregory Peck plays a journalist, works for a magazine, 
and his boss assigns him to do an expose on anti-Semitism. And so Gregory Peck's character takes on the assignment, but he's having a hard time finding a way in. He's kind of stuck for ideas. He's got writer's block. Until finally he gets the idea to actually pose as a Jew himself. And by posing as a Jewish man, he encounters various kinds of anti-Semitism. He meets other people who are Jewish over the course of his undercover operation. And he encounters various forms of anti-Semitism himself, and the Jewish people that he encounters each deal with anti-Semitism differently. There's a professor that he meets, played by Sam Jaffe, who sort of deals with anti-Semitism with, with a bit of humor. A friend of his named Dave Goldman, who is played by the great John Garfield. He prefers fighting back when faced with anti-Semitism. And the woman played by June Havoc, Gregory Peck's secretary at the magazine, she has a bit of a she has a bit of a complex surrounding her her identity, her Judaism, and she has there's some self-loathing there. And while all this is happening, a romance forms between Gregory Peck and Dorothy McGuire's characters. Dorothy McGuire is the niece of Peck's boss at the magazine, and the story, the expose, was actually her idea. Funny you're suggesting this series. Is it? Why? Oh, uh, lots of reasons. You make up your mind too quickly about people, Mr. Green. Women, anyway. I saw you do it when you sat down. <laughs> as apparent as all that. Well, you cross-filed and indexed me. A um, little too well-bred, self-confident, artificial, trifle absurd, typical New York. No, I didn't have time for all that. Oh, yes, you did. I even left out a few things. Faintly irritating upper-class manner, over-bright voice. All right, all right. I give up. <laughs> you win. I'm sorry I couldn't resist it, because it's only partly true. And she comes from an affluent Connecticut family. She's very well-to-do. And she may, may not be a bigot or an anti-Semite herself. However, her responses are a little insensitive, a little tone-deaf. And her attitude sort of puts a bit of a strain on her blossoming romance with Gregory Peck's character. And Gregory Peck's son, played by Dean Stockwell, is in school. And he ends up finding out what anti-Semitism looks like himself. And it's interesting because among the adults, more often than not, not in every case, but more often than not, the anti-Semitism is... It's kind of covert. It's never said in very crude or simple terms. It's all sort of through insinuation and, you know, innuendo and all this. They never, they, they, they never just come out with it. However, in Dean Stockwell's character's case, the child's case in school, of course, it, ha it happens much more crudely. And they call him all kinds of anti-Semitic slurs and so on and so forth. And it's interesting when, when the boy, Gregory Peck's son, actually sees firsthand what anti-Semitism looks like in school... Dorothy McGuire's character's response really makes things go south with their relationship. The child tells her, you know, that he was called. He was called all kinds of anti-Semitic slurs. And her response is basically, well, you're not Jewish. You're just posing as a Jew. Your father's posing as a Jew, so you don't have to worry about it. As opposed to just condemning those slurs outright and telling him that those words are wrong and anti-Semitism is wrong and sort of condemning the, that, that kind of behavior, she basically just says, ah, well, you don't have anything to worry about. You're not really Jewish, so it's all good. And of course, that makes things more difficult between her and Gregory Peck's characters. And I'm going to spoil it a little bit. There's one thing. It's a wonderful movie and a very daring movie for its time. Very few, if any, studios or films tackled the theme of anti-Semitism in that era in Hollywood. And so Dorothy McGuire and John Garfield's characters meet towards the end of the film. And John Garfield basically makes her understand that even though you may not be prejudiced or anti-Semitic yourself, if you see such behavior and stay silent, you're basically enabling that behavior. You're giving it a pass. Lots of things are pretty rough, Kathy. This is just a different kind of a war. And anybody who crawls away is a quitter just as much as... I didn't as... say that. You did. 
Somebody told a story. Sure, a man at a dinner table told a story, and the nice people didn't laugh. They even despised him for it, sure. But they let it pass. And behind that joke is Flumen and Darian and Tommy and those kids. And if you don't stop with that joke, where do you stop? Is that what you mean? That's right. And so Dorothy McGuire's made to understand the error in her ways, and she and Gregory Peck's character eventually reunite and their romance is renewed and so on, you know, which I don't like. It's a little syrupy, it's too clean an ending, like they put a bow on it, you know? I would have much rather that she understands the error in her ways, she and John Garfield had that exchange, but by then it's too late, her, her relationship with Gregory Peck can't be salvaged. But she's learned, she's learned from this experience. I would have much rather something like that as opposed to, you know, the sort of neat and tidy ending. I'm not a fan of those, generally. <laughs> and it's a great film, like I said, very daring for its time, although in 1947, that very same year Gentleman's Agreement came out, another film that dealt with anti-Semitism uh, was released called Crossfire, directed by Edward Dimitrik, with Robert Mitchum, Gloria Graham, Robert Ryan. Great film. And it was interesting trying to get this made because the producer was Daryl F. Zanuck at 20th Century Fox, and he himself was not a Jewish man, Although apparently, the story goes, he wanted to make this film because he had been mistaken for a Jewish man at an L.A. country club and he'd been denied entry as a result of that. Country clubs notoriously, at least back in the day, were restricted. They were, they were only open to, to Gentiles, to whites. Black people weren't allowed, Jewish people weren't allowed, and so on. You get the idea. And so ha after being mistaken for a Jewish man and being denied entry into one of these country clubs, Daryl F. Zanuck, the story goes, wanted to make this film. And apparently, legend has it, a lot of Jewish producers, a lot of Jewish film executives did not want him to make it because I suppose they feared backlash from the Motion Picture Association and the censorship board. But the film ended up getting made and it's a wonderful cast. And it's a wonderful look at anti-Semitism, especially because it shows how different people deal with it. Each person deals with it in their own way, for better or for worse. And the cast is great. Gregory Peck is the lead. I'm not a huge Gregory Peck fan, to be honest. He's good in this. He got nominated for an Oscar. But I always found him very sort of wooden and kind of one-note as an actor. But he's not bad in this. Dorothy McGuire plays uh, his love interest, the lady who had the idea for the expose on anti-Semitism. And their relationship takes various twists and turns. John Garfield shows up. I kind of wish there was more of him in this, to be honest. He was a fantastic actor. Died way too soon at the age of 39. Was blacklisted by the House of Un-American Activities Committee and a fantastic actor, and I think he was sort of a prototype for the generation of male stars that came from the actor's studio afterwards, the Brandos, the Montgomery Cliffs. I feel like, personally, John Garfield was often heralded as the sort of prototype for that kind of that kind of male actor, and he's excellent in this. He only shows up about halfway through the film, but he's wonderful. Uh, Celeste Holm is in this as well. She plays a friend of Gregory Peck's character, who works at the magazine as well. A beautiful woman, and another wonderful performance from her. I'm a cat, and this is Dirty Pool. But I'm intolerant of hypocrites. That's what I said, Phil, hypocrites. She'd rather let Dave lose that job than risk a fuss up there. That's it, isn't it? She's afraid. The Cathy's everywhere, afraid of getting the gate from their little groups of nice people. They make little clucking sounds of disapproval, but they want you and Uncle John to stand up and yell and take sides and fight. But do they fight? Oh, no. Kathy and Harry and Jane and all of them. They scold Bilbo twice a year and think they've fought the good fight for democracy in this country. They haven't got the guts to take the step from talking to action. One little action on one little front. Sure, I know it's not the whole answer, but it's got to start somewhere, and it's got to be with action, not pamphlets, not even with your series. It's got to be with people, 
Nice people, rich people, poor people, big and little people. But it's got to be quick. Not Kathy. She can't. She never will. She doesn't rate you, Phil. Anna Revere plays Gregory Peck's mother, another excellent actress. She was a New Yorker. She herself was blacklisted as well in the 1950s, I believe. She had won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in 1945 for a film called National Velvet. She later won a Tony on Broadway for the Lillian Hellman play Toys in the Attic. And she is excellent in this. She plays uh, Gregory Peck's ailing mother. When he comes out to New York to do the expose, he he shacks up with her, and she is, she is excellent in this. She kind of takes a bit of a back seat as the film progresses. You see a lot of her in the first half of the film. Have a good time last night? Yeah. You know, you need new people as much as you need new places. I mean, everybody does, not just you. Oh, it was a good bunch to start. It was a funny thing. There's a girl, Menifee's niece, suggested that series on anti-Semitism. Funny. You don't say. Why, women will be thinking, Nashville. Uh, June Havoc plays the secretary to Gregory, Gregory Peck's character at the magazine. And she reveals herself to be a Jewish woman. And she's the one that has a bit of a, there's a bit of a self-loathing thing there. And June Havoc herself was actually the sister of Gypsy Rose Lee, the famous burlesque performer. Albert Decker shows up as well. He is Gregory Peck's boss at the magazine. Albert Decker, notorious eccentric. He was in a lot of great films. He was in Kiss Me Deadly. He was in The Wild Bunch, which I think was the last film he ever made. But a notorious eccentric and had a very sort of bizarre and strange death. Apparently foul play was ruled out and it, it was later ruled autoerotic asphyxiation. He was found sort of uh, gagged. There were needles in his arms. He was hanging from the, the shower rod in his bathrooms. A very strange and strange person, strange way to go out. Jane Wyatt comes back in this. She was in Boomerang. She shows up in this as well as the sister to Dorothy McGuire's character. She lives in an affluent area of Connecticut. And much like Dorothy McGuire's character, she may not be totally prejudiced herself, but she's, she's reluctant to have a supposed Jewish man in her house, you know, because of what will the, what the, the neighbors think and what her social circle is going to think and, you know, all that bullshit. And Dean Stockwell, like I said before, he was a child actor. He plays Gregory Peck's son in this, and he's really good. And he's, kind of, he's, he's asked to do a, lot, a fair bit in this. And so, yeah, he was, a, he was a child actor, although he acted for most of his life. And he actually had a bit of a resurgence in the 80s. was in Paris, Texas, the great Vin Vendors film. He was in Blue Velvet, Married to the Mob. Uh, he got an Oscar nomination for that. He later shows up in The Player, the Robert Altman film. And he actually passed away recently in, uh, in November. May he rest in peace. And Sam Jaffe shows up in a small part as well. He plays a professor, a Jewish professor that Gregory Peck and Dorothy McGuire meet at, uh, at a shindig. And he was, uh, he was also in the great John Huston film, The Asphalt Jungle. Fantastic, fantastic film. And so that's the cast. The film was a, was a huge success. Got nominated for tons of awards. Ilya Kazan himself won Best Director at the Oscars. The film won Best Picture as well. Gregory Peck and Dorothy McGuire were both nominated for Best Actor and Best Actress. And uh, Celeste Holm, like I said, she and Anne Revere were both nominated for Best Supporting Actress. And uh, Celeste Holm ended up taking it, and rightfully so. Although Kazan himself didn't really like the film, he said that basically from the early 50s onwards is when he really started to make good films and sort of come into his own as a director. He was not a huge fan of Gentleman's Agreement, even though it's an awesome film. Although he did say, he said that Daryl F. Zanuck, the two of them made a lot of films together, and he said that Zanuck always wanted to turn everything into a love story. <laughs> Which I guess would explain the sort of syrupy ending of Gentleman's Agreement, but in any case, still an excellent film. Among the producers you work with, it seems that uh, you would be closer to a man like Zanuck, who worked at Warner Brothers before he was more social, than a man like Reby Mayer, uh, who was head of MGM. Or, they were different personalities. Oh, they certainly were, and uh, I, I didn't really feel genuinely close to any of them. 
I mean, oh, for better or worse, my taste was different. Uh, Zanuck turned everything into a love story. Every social issue became a love story, a conflict between lovers. And it was all right at the beginning when I did Gentleman's Agreement and Pinky, but I'm not too fond of those pictures. And so while Kazan is turning out films, he is, like I said, he stays busy on Broadway. And after directing uh, the production of All My Sons, he directed Arthur Miller's play Death of a Salesman, which is an American classic and has been adapted for the stage and for the screen a bunch of times. And uh, Kazan won a Tony yet again in 1949 for directing this play, and Lee J. Cobb stars in it. He was in Boomerang, and we're gonna he's going to come up again later as well. Mildred Dunnick starred in the play as Linda Lohman, and uh, Arthur Kennedy, who was in, also in Boomerang, he shows up in this as well as Biff, the son of Lee J. Cobb and Mildred Dunnick. And speaking of 1949, that was the year Kazan's next film came out. It's called Pinky. And this was based on a Sid Rickett Sumner novel called Quality, which came out in 1946. And it follows a light-skinned black woman. She's a black woman who passes for white. And she heads back home down south. She's been training as a nurse, as a nurse up north and passing for a white woman. And she goes back, back down south to be with her grandmother, who raised her. And her grandmother's a washerwoman. And she's been sort of slaving away. And she's an illiterate woman. And she basically worked as a washerwoman to earn the money uh, needed to give her granddaughter an education. And so when Pinky, the main character, comes back down south, she's convinced by her grandmother to care for a dying woman who lives next door. She's an elderly, elderly white woman. Pinky is initially reluctant to care for her because she was this woman was cruel to her when she was a kid. She used to own a boarding school, and she wasn't nice to the to very many of the children in the area. I said, Doc Joe, I said, never you mind. And was I proud to say it? I said, never you mind, sir. My Pinky's here, and she's a good nurse. So he's sitting there waiting for you right now. You told him I'd nurse her? Of course, honey. Doc Joe say everything depend on good nursing. He says she got to have a trained nurse. And he can't lay his hand on one for love or money if Miss M had the money, which she ain't. Then tell him to keep right on looking. I'm not interested. But she'll die. And let her die. Pinky! I didn't mean that, but Granny tried to understand my side. I only came back here because I hadn't anywhere else to go. I'd forgotten what it was like. I've been away a long time, Granny. I've known another kind of life. I've been treated like a human being. Try to understand, Granny, like an equal. Don't you see I can't go back into that house? Haven't I had enough without that? Pinky? I worked long and hard to give you an education. And if they done educated the very hard at you, everything I've worked and slaved so hard for is wrong. Now hear me. You're going up to Miss M's. You're going to take good care of her like the nurse you is. Or I swear on the Holy Bible, I'll rip the living daylights out you. But Pinky ultimately accepts. And she cares for this woman. The two of them begin butting heads. But they grow to respect each other. And so when the elderly woman, Miss M, dies, in her will, she leaves Pinky her house and everything in it. However... Miss M's cousin, her racist and conniving cousin, of course, wanted the house for herself, so she contests the will, and a sort of a court battle ensues. Meanwhile, Pinky has met a man up north, which she keeps a secret from the rest of them. And because she's been passing for a white woman up north, her fiancé, of course, doesn't know that she's black. So after she leaves and heads down south, her fiancé makes, makes his way down south, finds out that she is, in fact, black. And while he doesn't seem to care that she's black, he proposes that the two of them get married and move away somewhere else. And that's another source of conflict. And that's the thing about passing is that she's had an easier go of it up north because she passes for white. However, running away to a place where her skin color won't be a problem is in a sense sort of running away from her identity and who she really is. And so the film sort of, and that's basically what the film tackles, racial identity, racial prejudice, passing. 
just what was the trouble, ma'am? I don't care to make any charges. Oh, just a minute, if you please, ma'am. Well, I reckon you're strange in this part of the country, but, uh, well, this fella Jake, did he molest you in any way, ma'am? No, no. And the girl, um, what about her, ma'am? Now, she even so much as thought of threatening you. We want to know about it. Or if she give you any of her impudence. <laughs> Shut up, girl. Oh, excuse me, sir, but why are you two white men mamming her? She's nothing but a low-down colored gal. I tried to steal my man. Make him stop. Make him stop. You heard what she said. He's got to slap her down, unless it's true. Yes, it's true. I'm colored. My grandmother's Mrs. Dicey Johnson. Mrs. Dicey Johnson? I ought to slap them both down, Chief. Oh, hold it. I'll be going now. Go. You ain't going anywhere tonight. Get in that car. You mean I'm under arrest? <laughs> what do you think? On what charges are you holding? You heard what I said. Get in that car. And again, another daring film for its time. Although, in 1934, there was a film called Imitation of Life with Claudette Colbert and Louise Beavers that tackles these very subjects, passing especially. But even still, a very controversial film for its time, but was still very well received, very successful. And the main cast of the film, Gene Crane, plays Pinky, the main character, Ethel Waters plays her grandmother, and she's wonderful in this. Uh, Ethel Waters was actually a jazz singer, and she did a lot of work on stage. And she got nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for this, only the second black woman to be nominated for an Oscar. Hattie McDaniel had been nominated and actually won Best Supporting Actress in 1939, ten years prior for Gone with the Wind. And so Ethel Waters was uh, the second black woman to be nominated for an Oscar. Ethel Barrymore plays Miss M, the sickly elderly woman that uh, Pinky has to care for. Don't be so upset. I'll be dead soon, and you'll be free to go back north again. Going to give up your nursing when you get back up yonder? Nursing's my profession. In certain places, a nurse is treated with respect. Nobody deserves respect as long as she pretends to be something she isn't. How I live my life is my own business, Miss Ham. Of course it is. Isn't your husband's business or your children's? You can go now, Pinky. I'll be all right till your grandmother comes. You can't dismiss me like that. As you did when I was a child and you drove me out of your garden. Oh. You remember? Yes. Very clearly. What do you want me to do? Stay here, live this sort of life when I don't have to? Just prove you're addicted to the truth like you pretend. Wherever you are, be yourself. What am I then? You tell me. You're the ones that set the standards, you whites. You're the ones that judge people by the color of their skins. Well, by your own standards, by the only ones that matter to you. I'm as white as you are. That's why you all hate me. What should I do, dye my face? Grovel and shuffle? Say yasm and know him? Marry some man like Jake Waters? Carry a razor in my stocking so I won't upset you? Nobody hates you, Pinky. Ethel Barrymore came from basically an acting dynasty. Her brothers were John and Lionel Barrymore, two fantastic and beloved actors of their era in the, uh, the early days of Hollywood. And Drew Barrymore is actually the granddaughter of John Barrymore, so she and Ethel Barrymore were related. I guess she, that makes her her, her great-aunt or some shit, I don't know. And so Jean Crane, Ethel Waters, Ethel Barrymore, and William Lundigan plays Pinky's fiancé. So they're the main cast. Jean Crane got nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress as well. Uh, 1949, Olivia de Havilland ended up winning for The Heiress, and Ethel Waters and Ethel Barrymore were both nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Mercedes, Mercedes McCambridge ended up winning for All the King's Men, the Robert Rawson film with Broderick Crawford. Now... It's a good film, like I said, very daring for its time. Although, Kazan was not a fan of Gene Crane. She wasn't his choice. In fact, Kazan wasn't the original director. He took over for John Ford. Apparently, John Ford had been fired, 
And although Lena Horne and Dorothy Dandridge were apparently both interested in playing Pinky, uh, reportedly, Gene Crane was the one who ended up getting cast. And Kazan didn't think she had the right temperament. He wasn't a huge fan of hers, and actors thought she was kind of one-note. But still got a decent performance out of Jean Crane. She is good in this, but I kind of see what he means. She's a little she's a little too passive. And so anyway, the film was successful. It was banned in the town of Marshall, Texas. This is an interesting story. So it was banned in Marshall, Texas, and a man named uh, W.L. Gelling managed a segregated movie theater in the town. And it had been banned. He defied the censorship board. He screened the film anyway. And he had actually gotten charged with a misdemeanor because films at the time weren't protected under the First Amendment of the American Constitution, which is basically the freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of the press, and so on. And so he appealed the charges. The case ended up going to the Supreme Court, and as a result of this, films uh, were then, from then on, protected under the First Amendment, and his conviction was overturned. So it was a very important case uh, in terms of free speech and artistic expression and so on. And it's a good, solid film. And Ethel Barrymore, I think, alone is worth the price of admission. Ethel Waters is heartbreaking as uh, Pinky's grandmother, Dicey. She and Ethel Barrymore are really, really wonderful in this. And so the year after this, in 1950, Kazan's next film came out, and this was called Panic in the Streets. And it follows a U.S. Public Health Service agent, played by the great Richard Widmark. He teams up with a New Orleans cop. The film is set in New Orleans. He teams up with a New Orleans cop, played by Paul Douglas. So the two of them basically have to work together to stop the potential outbreak of a uh, pneumonic plague. A man has been murdered, he was determined to have been carrying pneumonic plague, and so Richard Widmark and Paul Douglas's characters basically have to work together, track down the murderers, not just to solve the murder, of course, but because the two murderers probably didn't know that this that the, their victim had pneumonic plague, and so they have to find them to sort of prevent an outbreak and keep all hell from breaking loose throughout the city. Meanwhile, they're trying to keep the investigation on the down low and keep the public from finding out. What am I supposed to do? Just sit here and watch? Listen, Doctor, I'm taking a chance that you may be right. You take a chance that I know what I'm doing and let me do it. As a matter of fact, you'd help us both out if you went home and went to bed. Okay, I'm not going to argue anymore. And I'm not going to wait until the facts penetrate that thick skull of yours. There just isn't that much time. And so Richard Widenmark is the member of the Public Health Service. Fantastic actor, was in Kiss of Death, Night in the City, Murder on the Orient Express. Great American actor, and he's really good in this. Paul Douglas plays the New Orleans cop, the detective that he is, uh, he is paired up with. Paul Douglas is fantastic in this. Died very young, unfortunately. He was in his 50s when he died of a heart attack. The two of them are a great duo. Oh, um, Captain, the, um, the boys are sort of wondering why they have to take these shots. They've been wondering, have they? Where do they think they are, in a summer camp? Because the commissioner said so, that's why. That's what I told him. Yes, sir. What's the matter? They're afraid of a little needle? They've been wondering. Roll up your sleeve. What do you mean? What do you think you're going to do? Roll up your sleeve. Why should I take one of those things? Because the commissioner said so, and I told the commissioner. Roll it up. Anything funny, Scott? No, sir. No, sir. Jack Palance is in this as well. This was his film debut. Another great actor was in Sudden Fear, won an Oscar later in life for City Slickers, was in Shane as well, and a great presence on screen. He plays Blackie, a ruthless criminal, he is the man who murdered this man who was carrying the pneumonic plague. The two of them were associates. Of course, Palance isn't aware of the plague, doesn't know that he's come in contact with a guy who has the plague. He suspects that this associate, this guy that he murdered, was holding out on him. He had a line on a big score that he's trying to track down. And, of course, the, the public health service and, and the detective, Richard Widmark and Paul Douglas, are trying to track him down. Zero Mostel plays an associate, a flunky, basically, of Jack Palance's character. Zero Mostel 
fantastic actor. Had a reputation for sort of chewing the scenery and stealing scenes. Um, but I adore him. He's great in this. He was in the original Producers, the Mel Brooks film with Gene Wilder. He is a fantastic, fantastic performer. Was in a, a Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum as well. Another guy who was blacklisted during the Red Scare and that crackdown from the, the HUAC was out of work for a good decade. And Kazan was actually quite fond of his talents, and rightfully so. And uh, Kazan actually hired him for this film. Uh, when Mostel was had been already blacklisted, he... he he hired him to be in this film just because he was he was such an admirer of his talent and Israel Mostel's great in this. Always a treat to watch. And even back then, he had that awful sort of comb over that was a that was a, a trademark of his. And Barbara Bel Geddes is in this as well. She plays the wife to Richard Widmark's character. And lastly, a Greek actor, Alexi Minotti, one of my people, shows up in a small part. Uh, he plays a restaurant owner, and uh, the investigation leads Widmark and Douglas to his restaurant, and you know shenanigans ensue. And it's a solid film. It's got like a bit of a film noir feel to it. It was shot on location in New Orleans. And it's interesting because it, it um, the way it was made, it was, kind of, it, was kind of a, it was kind of a new thing for American cinema at the time. That sort of realistic or naturalistic style of filmmaking. You know, shooting on location, casting locals as, extra, as extras or in small parts. Like I said, it was shot on location in the city of New Orleans. And it was a kind of filmmaking that had actually become, it was emerging in Italy, the, the Italian neorealist movement, as it's called. Roberto Rossellini and uh, Vittorio De Sica were, were, were making films in, in this style uh, in the late 40s. And so Kazan took a lot of what they were doing. I don't know if he did it consciously. I don't know how aware he was of their work. But um, this film, Panic in the Streets, is made in very similar fashion. And it has those film noir elements as well. The mystery, the chase, the investigation, cops and crooks. Uh, and it's a great film. One of the lesser-known entries in the Kazan catalog, but it's a great one and a fantastic cast. Um, and this was another one that had... There were some slight beefs with the Motion Picture Association. A guy named Joseph Breen, who was a censor with the with, uh, with the association, he was sort of nitpicking. Uh, there was something about a prostitute that it couldn't be explicitly stated that a woman was a prostitute. She, she's in a bit part. She's in it for a few seconds. And so this guy kept nitpicking at the script. It had undergone some changes... Uh, so there was like this back and forth with the Motion Picture Association in 1949. They changed the title of the film twice. Initially, it was Port of Entry, then Outbreak, before they settled on Panic in the Streets. So there was a bit of, you know, some red tape to cut through. Uh, but the film came out in 1950, and it's it's wonderful. One I highly recommend. Now, this next one is one of Kazan's best-known and most celebrated films. Streetcar Named Desire. This came out in 1951. Warner Brothers put this one out. And this is an adaptation of the Tennessee Williams play, uh, which he had written in 1947. Tennessee Williams, for those who don't know, first of all, shame on you. Second, another iconic playwright that, uh, like Arthur Miller, Kazan became friends with and collaborated with several times. Uh, Kazan had directed the stage adaptation of the play on, uh, on Broadway. And uh, he adapted this, this play with Tennessee Williams himself and with a guy named Oscar Saul. And so the play follows... A woman named Blanche Dubois, sort of Southern Belle type, comes from an aristocratic background. She leaves home after a series of, uh, of personal troubles. And she goes to live with her sister and her brother-in-law, her brutish, sort of crude and insensitive brother-in-law, in their sort of dilapidated, run-down apartment in New Orleans in the French Quarter. And like the play, most of the film takes place in this apartment, this cramped, tiny apartment in this run-down part of New Orleans. It's a small space... Tensions are high, and initially Blanche Dubois is kind of tight-lipped about 
what she's leaving behind. And gradually you come to find out that she had a teaching job, and you come to find out that she was fired for having a dalliance with a student. She was married earlier, early in her life. Her husband committed suicide, and she blames herself for it. And you also come to find out that although she puts on this sort of refined and aristocratic and sort of demure facade, this exterior that she puts on, this sort of classy and sort of shy southern bell lady, that she was in fact uh, a bit of a promiscuous type, and that she had a habit of seeking affection uh, in the arms of strangers. And it's interesting because you see Blanche, she's sort of coming apart at the seams. She's trying to keep it all together. Again, she puts on this very sort of tailored and very um, refined exterior, if you will. But she's kind of falling apart. She's hitting the booze. She's very fragile, very sensitive. You want a shot? No, I, I rarely touch it. Well, there's some people that rarely touch it, but it touches them often. Oh. Hey, you mind if I make myself comfortable? My shirt is sticking. Please, please do. Be comfortable. That's my motto, where I come from. It's mine, too. It's hard to stay looking fresh in hot weather. Well, well, I haven't washed or even powdered. Here you are. And her sister seems to be supportive. She seems to be happy to have her there, although she's kind of reluctant to pry into her past. And, of course, there, it turns out that their old family estate, their old home, was lost to creditors. And so Blanche is broke. And she has nowhere else to go, which is why she ends up in New Orleans with her sister and her brother-in-law. And her brother-in-law, Stanley Kowalski, is, like I said, a very brutish man. And he's insensitive. He and Blanche's sister, Stella, have a very sort of tumultuous relationship. And he's, he's unpredictable. He's insensitive. He's abusive. And you see it happen in the film. And you come to understand sort of that they've been through this before. And that while he does not treat her very well... The two of them stay together, and it appears as though they're they're still crazy about each other. Estella! You put that howling down there and go to bed. Yours, I want my clothes out here. You shut up. You're going to get the law on you. Estella! Get beat on a woman and then call her back, because she ain't going to come. You're going to have a beat. Listen, you I'll have... say haul you in and turn a file on you. Yours, I want my clothes down here. You stink. Meanwhile, Blanche meets a co-worker and a friend of Stanley Kowalski's, Mitch, and the courtship begins between the two of them. And unlike Stanley Kowalski, Mitch is more of a gentleman. He's a straight arrow. He's a good man, and he's very gentlemanly with her, much to her delight. However, upon finding out about Blanche's promiscuous past, Stanley Kowalski tells Mitch this. He reveals Blanche's promiscuity and her, her, her dalliances to Mitch. Partly out of pure contempt for Blanche and partly because he's attracted to her, I would say. And so at the end of all this, as tensions grow between Stanley and Blanche, eventually, spoiler alert, one night, he rapes her. And like I said before, Blanche is already in a very fragile state. She's falling apart, despite her best efforts to keep it from showing. And when Stanley rapes her, naturally, it sends her over the edge. She has a mental break and she stops living in reality. Before I get into what I think it's about, let's just say the main cast. So like I said, Kazana directed the play on stage first. And Vivian Lee plays Blanche Dubois. Jessica Tandy had originated the role on stage. However, Vivian Lee apparently had been in a London production. She was from the UK. She and Lawrence Olivier were partners for many years. And she was a two-time Oscar winner. And she plays Blanche in this. And she's fantastic. Marlon Brando plays Stanley Kowalski, her brutish brother-in-law. Marlon Brando 
Again, one of the most beloved actors of all time. And at this time, this was only his second film role. He was 27 years old. He and Kazan knew each other from the actor's studio, and he had done the part of Stanley on stage. Kim Hunter plays Stella, the wife of Stanley Kowalski and the sister of Blanche Dubois. Kim Hunter had also done the play. And Carl Malden plays Mitch, who had also done the play himself and was in the actor's studio. So Kazan brought back a lot of the old gang. And Rudy Bond and Peg Hillius play the Hubels, the upstairs neighbors to um, the Dubois sisters and Stanley. And the two of them had done the play as well. So Kazan basically gets the old gang back together, with the exception of Vivian Lee. And she was cast uh, primarily because she was a, she was a bankable star. She was, she was a better-known actress than Jessica Tandy at that time. And I think what the play is about is basically just... I guess it's about guilt. One, Kim Hunter doesn't pry into Blanche's past. She doesn't really ask her what she's doing there. She never, she's, never, she doesn't, she's not really inquisitive. She never really gets to the bottom of, uh, of why Blanche has just shown up at her doorstep. And I think part of that is out of guilt. Because while their family estate was basically getting more and more indebted and eventually, you know, getting lost to creditors, Stella leaves. Kim Hunter's character leaves. She left of the two sisters. And it was Blanche who stayed behind. She buried their parents, endured all the close family losses. She was there when the house was lost to creditors, so she had to, she had to bear the brunt of all that while Kim Hunter was away. So I think that's why Kim Hunter's character Stella is basically a little... She's, uh, she goes easy on Blanche. And of course you have Blanche's guilt over the suicide of her husband. In the play, Blanche's husband actually commits suicide because after um, Blanche find, finds out that he's gay. And it's only just sort of alluded to in the film when Blanche is confiding in Mitch about her husband's suicide and saying that he had a soft nature. And when Blanche confronts him with it, she belittles him over it. It's then that her husband commits suicide and she feels tremendous guilt over that. She feels responsible for his death. One night, we drove out to a place called Moon Lake Casino. We danced the bar Zubiana. Suddenly, in the middle of the dance floor, the boy I had married broke away from me and ran out of the casino. A few minutes later, shot. I ran. All did. All ran and gathered about the terrible thing at the edge of the lake. He stuck a revolver into his mouth and fired. It was because, on the dance floor, unable to stop myself, I said, You're weak. I've lost respect for you. I despise you. And then, the searchlight which had been turned on the world was turned off again. So guilt plays a huge part in this. Of course, it, a lot of it is just about Blanche's inner torment and the way her, the weight of her past transgressions is sort of getting the best of her, even though she's trying to keep it all together. And also, it's about masculinity, good and bad. It's almost like Stanley Kowalski and Mitch are two sides of the same coin. Stanley Kowalski is basically what... Man, this term gets thrown around a lot today, but he, he's basically all toxic, toxic masculinity. And he checks off those sort of conventional boxes, right? He's kind of macho, muscular, very crude and brutish. And Brando's excellent in this. He's unpredictable. You never know what he's going to do. You never know how he's going to react. But of course, he proves, to be, he proves to be insensitive. He proves to be abusive. He treats both Stella and Blanche horribly. I missed him coming here with roses because I know where he is. 
And there is been a thing but imagination and lies and deceit and tricks. And look at yourself. Take a look at yourself here in a worn-out Mardi Gras outfit. Running for 50 cents or some rag pig with a crazy crown on. Now, what kind of a queen do you think you are? You know that I've been on to you from the start, and not once did you pull the wool over this boy's eyes. You come in here and you sprinkle a place with powder and you spray perfume and you stick a paper lantern over the light bulb and lo and behold, the place is turning to Egypt and you are the queen of the Nile sitting on your throne swimming down my liquor. And you know what I say? Ha-ha! You hear me? Ha-ha-ha! And I think as much as, you know, despite all his contempt for Blanche, he's annoyed that she's staying with him at the beginning, at, at the beginning of the play. And he, no, he makes no effort to hide his disdain for her, but I think also part of him is attracted to her. And on the other side of that, you have Carl Malden's character, Mitch. And he and, he and Stanley Kowalski could not be less alike. He's soft-spoken, he's mild-mannered, very gentlemanly. He's sort of courting Blanche the old-fashioned way. And he's sincere. And so when he finds out the hard way that Blanche has a history of promiscuity, naturally he feels betrayed. Because he didn't find out from her. You know, aside from the fact that promiscuity in general was highly frowned upon at that time, you know early 50s and so on, late 40s. Oh, I don't mind you being older than what I thought, but... But all the rest... Oh. Why, they, they pitch about your ideals being so old-fashioned and all the malarkey that you've been dishing out all summer. Oh, oh, I knew you weren't 16 anymore, but I was fool enough to believe you were straight. Who told you I wasn't straight? My loving brother-in-law and you believed him? No! No, I called him a liar at first, and then I checked on the story. I talked directly over long distance to this merchant in Oriel. Who is this merchant? Keefob. The merchant Keefob of Oriel. I know the man. He whistled at me. I put him in his place, and now for revenge, he makes up stories about me. Didn't you stay in a hotel called the Flamingo? Flamingo? No! Tarantula was the name of it. I stayed at a hotel called the Tarantula Arms. Tarantula Arms? Yes, a big spider. That's why I brought my victims. Yes, I have had many meetings with strangers. And it's a wonderful play. The performances are wonderful. Another, another hit for Kazan, another sensation. Kazan was nominated for Best Director at the Oscars. Brando was nominated for Best Actor. This film made him, basically made him uh, a viable leading man in Hollywood. Like I said, it wasn't a household name by any means at this time. And beginning with Streetcar Named Desire, he got nominated for Best Actor at the Oscars for four straight years, 51 through 54. In uh, 1951, he didn't end up winning. Humphrey Bogart took it for The African Queen, the John Huston film. Vivian Lee, however, won the Oscar for Best Actress in 1951 for Streetcar. Uh, her second, she had won in 1939 as well for Gone with the Wind. Uh, Kim Hunter won Best Supporting Actress. Carl Malden won Best Supporting Actor. Tennessee Williams got nominated for the script, the adaptation, and Alex North got nominated for the music, the score, and it's a wonderful score, nice and jazzy. And it fits because the play is set in New Orleans to New Orleans, a jazz city, if nothing else. Uh, and it's a wonderful, wonderful film. And heartbreaking as well. And that concludes the first part of our three-part episode on Elia Kazan. The next week, we're going to talk about uh, his work that he did through the 1950s. We've got some of his best work to get to still, a lot of good stuff to look forward to. On the Waterfront, East of Eden, Baby Doll. We also have to talk, most importantly, about his testimony before the House of Un-American Activities Committee, the sort of the, the reasons he had for doing it. Uh, so we have a lot, a lot of stuff to get to. And we're going to talk about the years of the Hollywood blacklist and so on. So it gets more interesting from here. We, uh, I'm, today's, today's a short episode. I wanted to get through the early films instead of some of his early work, his earlier life. 
Uh, but trust me, it gets better from here. We're going to talk about a lot of great films, the controversy that surrounded Kazan. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff coming up. And so before I leave you, remember, please, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Close Set with T. Alexis on any of those platforms you can find us. Follow, subscribe, listen, leave comments, do all that good stuff. Follow us on the Instagram. Closed Set Podcast is the handle. And feel free to email us at closedsetpod at gmail.com. That's closedsetpod at gmail.com. And until next time, until we bring you part two of our Ilya Kazan trilogy, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. There's the east. I was born thousands of miles to the east in the water around the city of Constantinople, now Istanbul. And uh, my family were a family of Greeks. They were lived a terrified life. So that perhaps, like all immigrants here, I'm more appreciative of what America has, what America's brought me or allowed me to do, than the native people. The native Americans, just like the native French, the native Germans, the native British, don't appreciate necessarily what they have, which is the freedom to do within limited areas to do what they want. However, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more and more drawn back to my roots, you say, my old, my old country. I keep going back to Greece. I keep wanting to go back to Turkey, and sometimes I do. I guess I'm a man in between two cultures. I'm a, a man who's half American and half Anatolian, Greek, whatever you want to call it, Near Eastern.